You're listening to the Binge Media Podcast Network on BingeMedia.net. And now, the Binge Aftertaste. You, alone, will follow the road and leave Covington Woods. You are to tell no one in the towns where we are and return with haste. Welcome to this review of The Village, part of the binge movie aftertaste M. Night Shyamalan Retrospective. Thank you! Thank you! Thank you! Join Garrett, Matt, and the returning Mike Kineri as they look at the entire span of Shyamalan's work. How is it you are brave when all the rest of us shake in our boots? From that little-known Entertainment Weekly emission, The Sixth Sense, all the way through his new release, Old, coming out July 23rd, the boys look at all the signs of what makes Shyamalan possess one of the most fascinating careers in the history of Hollywood. Do not fret. You are fearless in a way that I shall never know. Why did Shyamalan become the black sheep and not join his family in the doctor profession? If I want to speak, I will open my mouth and speak. When did everything go wrong? I have an idea that I would like to talk to you about. And why the hell did Mike not see The Sixth Sense until this retrospective? I understand you hold the record. It will never be broken, they say. The answers to all these questions and many more, all coming up, courtesy of Binge Media. I do long to do boy things. The Village. Released July 30th, 2004, budget was $60 million, box office $256.7 million, and this is directed by M. Night Shyamalan. Welcome back! We have taken a break to talk about some toys and some crashing cars, but we couldn't go much longer without talking about M. Night Shyamalan. We are returning to this retrospective. We are once again joined by, mercifully, the one and only Mike Ganeri. What's up, Mike? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm glad to be here and glad to hash out what might be an interesting episode. It might be. And, of, as always, the one and only Matthew Goudreau. What's up, Matt? This is one of those retros, now that we're in part two, where I hate the fact that you're a completionist. <laughs> <laughs> Mike, correct me if I'm wrong. This is your first viewing of this, correct? Correct. All right. I can't. Haven't seen a single scene of it before. I can't now. wait. All right. Before we get to the actual movie, though, there is so much to dissect with this one. Boys, it is safe to assume that this is the moment it started going south for M. Night. You guys are aware of the press and everything around this movie, right? Well, I kind of knew at this point that the bloom was off the rose as far as Shyamalan's reputation had already become a punchline. The fact that people knew there was a twist going into the movie... And I remember Roger Ebert trashed yeah. this thing. It's almost like he burned the entire village alive. He was the crazy <laughs> villager, pitforks and torches saying, burn this movie to the ground. Mike, how aware were you of the thrashing, not just this movie, but Shyamalan himself took around the time the village was released? 
So um, I don't remember what episode it was before this, but uh, we talked about how it seemed like there was always one movie that was the breaking point for people in their personal relationship with M. Night Shyamalan. And that for some people it might be Signs, for other people it might be Lady in the Water, for some people it's The Village. I, I feel like uh, what I've gathered from people is that this is, this is a very uh, divisive film. This is one where it is a lot of people's breaking point. Although it's interesting to hear how big of a hit it was. Yeah. So clearly... Um, People, if they had their trepidations before the film came out, they decided to try and settle that at the at the box office. Yeah, interesting you bring that up. This thing still made money. It made over $250 million, and there are still many credible actors cramming to work with the guy because just two years earlier, he was being hailed as the next Spielberg. But this movie, more importantly, this script was just creating a hole in the balloon where the air was just starting to leak out. But here's the thing. I can live with a movie being bad for bad sake. I can even live with the marketing being off the mark, trying to sell me something different than what we got. Because in the marketing, they sell they sell this as almost like a horror film. You know, It seems like every single one of these uh, movies, we go into the trailers for this movie. But uh, Matt, did you watch the trailer for this one again? You seem to be doing that with all these movies. Yeah, this is the one that plays the most as a straightforward horror movie because they emphasize the isolationist component and the monsters are at the forefront. Yeah. You know, which is weird because in the trailer I watched, they show their introduction the first time you see them in full when Joaquin Phoenix is behind that uh-huh. side of the building. And I get it because you're trying to sell it to the widest audience possible, but at the same time, you're blowing your wad because we know what these creatures look like, so there's no surprise. And unless you have the intellectual capacity of an amoeba, you're going to know the twist of this movie the moment it starts. Yeah. People came in expecting a period horror film, But instead, we got M. Night trying to do Jane Austen. But that's not the worst part. The worst part of the marketing behind this, and I don't know if you guys remember this, the Sci-Fi Network started advertising it, and they aired a bullshit farce of a documentary called The Buried Secrets of M. Night Shyamalan. Have you guys heard of this? I've heard of it. I've never seen it. Oh, man. You know, this is when his ego was just completely out of control. This is a documentary that goes so far as to say, well, first of all, let me just say, you look at this cast. We have very credible actors, as I said, but we don't have a Bruce Willis or a Mel Gibson. The marketing for this movie decided to put the star as M. Night Shyamalan. His script will have an ending that will once again blow you away. And it's funny. Wait, did they did they say that? Well, that's the vibe. Yeah, that's the basics okay. of it. And it's funny because I, when I do these retrospectives, I do go through the IMDb trivia. I do go over it with a fine tooth comb. And if I do say it on the air, I do read a lot of it on the air. But it's only if I read or hear it from a reliable source as well. There is a piece of trivia from this film that just blew me away, and I have to read it. It, it, it says that Sigourney Weaver, who by the way is my favorite actress, I've gone on record as saying that she says that she had nightmares for two weeks after reading the script. <laughs> And to me, this was kind of put out there to once again feed his ego and to say, yeah, this is the scariest man out there. You know, this guy's going to. Yeah, I don't buy that. Absolutely not. I'm sorry. I don't buy this. Yeah. She's she's smarter than that. But anyway, I I remember this movie was coming out and being an avid Howard Stern listener. And I had heard advertisements for this documentary on his show and their efforts to get a so-called reclusive M. Night to talk about the time he had officially died by drowning, at least for a bit, and then realized he could communicate with Henry, a boy who also drowned in that same lake 200 years before. This is real, folks. This actually aired. 
and they're filming fans of his outside his so-called mansion. He comes off as so diva-ish because the interviewer is trying to ask him about this whole situation. And he's like, nope, I can't talk about that. You need to go now. Talking about how it feels to be a, a young Oscar-nominated director. And this was the crux of the film. This, he's saying that he is communicating with the dead. He literally has a sixth sense when he comes up with his ideas because of this boy. Turns out, as you could imagine, it was all fake. This isn't like an Errol Morris. This is, this is... No, no, no. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Uh, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, you did say it aired on the sci-fi yes, channel. Yes, so... it did. But they treated it as a real documentary. That was the weird part. It... They would go interview him, and every time the camera was around, it would flicker. Because for some reason, there was some kind of energy emitting from M. Night to cause this to happen. Now, I'm making it sound a lot more exciting than it is. Do you... Hold on. Do you think that this is where Joaquin Phoenix got the idea to do I'm, I'm Still Here? Well, that's just as it, isn't it? I mean, it, it could be. Because Joaquin Phoenix did go on to do that. And let's face it, too. I mean, around this time, we had the Osbournes out there. We had Paris Hilton doing My So-Called Life. We had this kind of reality-based stuff out there. But nothing so far out there as this. And I guarantee Joaquin Phoenix probably took this and ran with it years later. This, because I have never heard of this before. This sounds like the greatest mockumentary that Christopher Guest never made. <laughs> well, let me tell you something. I watched it when it originally aired. I might have fallen asleep. Did, did you think it was real at the time or, or going into it, not when you finished? Well, the way they were advertising it, it did sound like it was real. And it did sound like M. Night was Got saying it. that you're going to find out secrets about me that I've never revealed before and I never wanted to be revealed. He was coming out in the press saying, I don't want this thing to be aired. He was trying to fight to oh get it God. stopped from being aired. Oh, yeah. And when I saw it, did I believe it? Not really. I, I kind of watched it with a smirk. And Sci-Fi Network was under pressure because people... We're starting to not buy this bullshit. And they eventually had to come out and say, yeah, M. Night and this director, uh, Nathaniel Kahn, they came up with this idea and we just kind of aired it. So they had to come out and say it was a mockumentary, not a documentary. It's on YouTube right now. But let me just say, I tried watching it in preparation for this. I'm making it sound a lot more exciting than it is. It's fucking boring as hell. It, you can barely get through it. It's an hour and 45 minutes well, or so. Well, I'm surprised that the studio or the network, whoever holds the copyright, hasn't taken that down, preserved their cash cap. I mean, <laughs> the demand out there for the buried secret of M. Night Shyamalan on DVD or Blu-ray has got to be so great that they're just leaving money on the table. <laughs> So, yeah, it's pretty remarkable that this is where his ego was at that time. However, this was also M. Night's first compromised vision as his original script actually leaked online. And to salvage what they could out of what he had written, reshoots were ordered and M. Night rewrote a lot of it. There were also different editing choices made to certain things when they get revealed, which I'll mention as we get into the movie. So, yeah, I mean, when we talked about the previous movies, these, those were all M. Night's vision from the very beginning, and nothing was compromised here. This wasn't exactly a script that executives were aching to make, and compromises had to be made. It's interesting, because I don't think that necessarily reading the script of this, and I, obviously this is not the script that he um, set out with, but uh, I, I don't think necessarily reading the script for this, you would be immediately aware of what the issues are with the movie. Mm -hmm. Do you know yeah, what I'm saying? Absolutely. Like, I feel a lot of this is in the execution, but we'll get to that. Yeah, we sure will. All right. <laughs> you guys ready to dive into this sucker? Yes. Matt, you ready? <laughs> oh, yes. I'm ready to put on my yellow vest or my yellow, my yellow robes and, and head in. Get my walking stick. We start off, and right off the bat, as the opening credits roll, I have to ask you guys something, because I know both of you are fans of Roger Deakins. I had no idea the man did a movie with M. Night Shyamalan. I didn't know it either. I always forget when Deacons does things that aren't with the Coens. Like, I, you know what I'm saying? Like, I, I'm always yeah. like, 
Deacon. Yeah, yeah. It's like, I, for some reason, it's like, uh, I guess it's because he doesn't have too much of like one signature thing. You know, when I think like, I love Robert Richardson. But with Robert Richardson, you always think about that overlit kind yeah. of, you know what I'm saying? Or like, uh, who's the guy who does the, uh, uh, Delbanel, Bruno uh-huh. Delbanel, where he's got the color correction and everything like that. I can't think of necessarily one thing that I associate with Roger Deakin. So other than the Coen brothers, I always have to like be like, oh, yeah, he did do that, didn't he? Shawshank, yeah, he did do that. And, you know, I have a lot of things to say about this movie, but one thing I'm not going to say, technically, it's a pretty well-made movie. At least looks good. We open with the funeral of a man's son and a close-up of a tombstone that reads, died in 1897. And this is the kind of thing that really pisses me off. This tombstone, it isn't here to fool the characters in the movie, and it's not here to tell a story to the audience. It is here for the simple reason to trick us. And right away, I'm pissed. Yeah. Well, and the movie gets off to a bad start because of that. Because I I did know about the twist going into this, and I was interested in seeing how it was executed and how it was paid off and everything like that. But it's a mistake from Jump Street because by having a date on there, it pinpoints it so specifically that it makes the reality that they're building from that point on completely unbelievable because Shyamalan either as a writer or director is not committing to the setting enough Mm -hmm. and by the end of it raises all these specific questions like why did they pick a specific time if they're creating this place they don't have to have a concept of years in the same way that we do you know what I'm saying like if this is if they've been doing this for 30 years and it's 1897 they're going to be doing it in 20 years it's going to be 1917 do they have to start introducing modern technology as they go further along you know what i mean mm-hmm. like do they have to is are they you know are they going to answer yeah. world war one like it raises all these questions yeah right away it creates the intrinsic problem with the movie in that the twist is so obvious that Shyamalan spends the entire movie trying to both throw you off balance but also justify it sort of over explaining if i had to compare this movie to another movie that we've recently reviewed this is to Shyamalan what the prestige is for nolan in that it's all about misdirection, but when you really analyze the plot, it's like, wait, in both of these movies, because there's the part in The Prestige where Hugh Jackman hires the body double, Mm -hmm. and then we find out that there's like a conspiracy where people put in the suits, and it's like, as soon as those people stop listening to you, your entire facade is blown up. And, you know, both movies are about misdirection, and I think both overplay their hands exponentially. The one thing I will give The Prestige over this is this movie does not have a Hugh Jackman or a Christian Bale who is just uber charismatic and interesting. For having the first movie of Shyamalan's that's really an ensemble piece, not just two or three actors, Mm -hmm. this is easily the most impressive cast he's assembled up. It's almost generational because you've got past stars who are big in the Mm -hmm. 80s and 90s. You have contemporary favorites. And then you have a small role by Jesse Eisenberg who would become a much bigger Mm -hmm. actor. So it's funny how, like, this movie's cross-generational, even though I don't think any of the characters or actors are quote-unquote great. And there's someone who I think is just so fucking bad, I can't even quantify it. I wonder who it is. I'm sure all our listeners are very confused about who in this film could possibly be delivering a performance that stands out as being unusually bad. Perhaps... Poor Sigourney Reaver. We'll get there. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Cherry Jones, <laughs> so as they eat and, and William Hurt's character of Edward gives a speech about maybe settling here not really being a good idea we get a close up of Jesse Eisenberg as Matt pointed out this uh, being one of the first times I saw him and we start hearing howls coming from inside the woods these are eventually going to be revealed to be those we don't speak of I didn't realize Voldemort was going to be in this movie 
You know what a lot of this movie reminded me of? What's that? Is this is a weird reference, but do you, do you guys do you guys remember that episode of Futurama where um, <laughs> Fry uncovers Leela's pet, her little like miniature, I think Nibbler, I think is his name. He's like a little like penguin creature thing, and he finds out that he's actually part of a secret society of geniuses who like control the universe. I mean, they all speak in like this old timey way, and they wear like robes and are like, "Does he not know the secrets? He knows not." I don't. That's what this movie kept reminding me of. Like I, I William Hurt and uh, Brendan Gleeson and all them. They, just, I, that's what it reminded me of. That and the the secret society and hot dogs. <laughs> <laughs> Here we go. We also get the first scene with Hadrian Brody as Noah Percy. And, you know, if Oscars could be taken away, this performance by Mr. Brody should have caused that statue he had won to be taken away and sold for scraps. This cliche portrayal of a, for lack of a better term, village idiot is fucking embarrassing. And it's terrible in a way that's sort of hard to describe. I feel like this is the case with a lot of forms where somebody plays a mentally challenged character where you're like... I can't exactly put my finger on what it is technically that you're doing wrong, but you're doing it way wrong. I can see how aware of yourself you are. And he's, he's an actor who can be, he can, you talk about taking away Oscars. He maybe should have to not only like give one back, but like make one and give them back. Because of this and, and a few other yeah. things. He can, he can be really good, but he can. He can really stick up the joint too. And I think me and Matt have covered a couple of them. <laughs> Yeah, he was not believable in Predators yep. whatsoever. I think he's awful in King Kong, and he's fucking terrible in this. It is literally, in Tropic Thunder, when Robert Downey Jr.'s character has that monologue about going full retard, and he mentions Sean Penn being the worst example, I think it's yeah, this. I was This is worse, yeah, because it's also inconsistent. Yeah. Like, there's parts where it's like, okay, I don't buy that this person that you're, you're uh, portraying is remotely capable of doing the things you're portraying him as doing. But we'll get to that, mm. probably. And it's so weird to, like, Jane Austen with this love triangle. He's pretty much, you know, there's a little bit of Shakespeare in that. He's pretty much, if the Keanu Reeves character in Much Ado About Nothing was mentally handicapped, uh, <laughs> he's pretty much this guy. Mm. Right, yeah, that's a good point. Like, he's lurking in the shadows. Yeah. Like, that's, a, that's, a, that's a good comparison. But he's, yeah, but he's this terrible performance of a mentally challenged character it's, it's really really bad real bad but you know what i'm not going to put it all on him though because one thing i'm noticing as we're not even five minutes into the movie is that we have a lot of actors here who at one point or another have been praised whether critically or by the academy and here in this movie they are giving some of the worst line deliveries i have ever seen them give sigourney weaver who i adore is not good in this movie i think these actors whether by their agents or by the press they were reading really thought this guy was going to be the next spielberg and they put their faith in him to take the lines they were delivering and turn them into something golden and that's why i love what we're doing with the series gentlemen because this is the first time people started noticing that when this movie came out the talent for Shyamalan to bring these kinds of performances out of actors like Bruce Willis, it kind of wasn't there anymore. Well, and it's, he makes this really like almost fatal decision with the, with the setting here yeah. and this dialogue that he writes, which is not good. It's, I, it, writing period dialogue is very difficult. And I say that as somebody who has written stuff that's you know, never been published or anything like that, but I've written stuff that's set in the 19th century. And it, it, to find the right balance between being like comprehensible, but at the same time not feeling too out of place, not taking the audience out, and yet still being, you know, entertaining and everything like that. It's a hard balance to get, and he does not get it here. Like the, this dialogue is, I mean, it's it's like the fucking it's the it's Nibbler, it's Futurama again. Yeah. It's it's not good, and it's the actors are pretty much. Uh, 
you talk about unconvincing line delivers. There are a lot of those, and they 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 happen from a lot of the a lot of the actors. And I think there's a couple people who come out. I think a lot better than others uh, in terms of handling the dialogue or just handling the setting and everything like that. But Judy Greer oh. in this movie is oh. bad. And she is someone who is usually so, yeah. so solid. Mm-hmm. And her line deliveries are like, it's it's bad. It's like yeah. it's like a high school play or something yeah. like that. It's so delivered as opposed to performed. This whole movie feels like a high school student film because it's high concept, or at least it's pitching itself as high concept, but really it's it's nowhere near as sophisticated as it claims to be, and so much of the acting feels very stagey. Mm-hmm. This might as well be a stage production. And there's a way to make that work, I think. You know what I mean? There's a way to sort of lean into the crucible aspects of it, you know what I'm saying? But um, he doesn't do it here. And, like, a movie I would say, like, is a better version of this kind of attempt. I This is like me comparing uh, Signs to Leviathan or whatever the fuck I did, but it's like... Did you guys see The Lighthouse yeah, oh yeah. the other year? Uh-huh. How it has this great, this so, such a specific and yet vague setting. Uh-huh. Do you know what I mean? Like, can you pinpoint a year that movie takes place in? No. Can you pinpoint a specific place that movie takes in? No. And yet it gives you that sort of foreign and historical feeling to it that, like, if he, if Shyamalan could have replicated that kind of feel here, I think this movie would have been... That, that could have been really amazing. You know what I mean? If he could pull off that twist because he has this right balance of specificity and, and, and vagueness in, and mysteriousness in the setting and in the first acts of this film, then he could have had something that was really great. And this shows you how well the Sixth Sense manages to pull off its twist ahead of time. You're not bothered by the movie logic there. You're not bothered by the manipulations he takes to set up this twist. Here you are bothered by that. Yeah, and, you know, you bring up something very interesting that I was going to bring up later, but I'm going to piggyback on it and bring it up right now. Was there any point, other than the huge twist that he needs at the end of this movie, to have it take place in the modern time? Couldn't you have had it take place in the 1800s? Um, there's a way you could do that, and Shyamalan just, he was so be- hell-bent on doing that twist. There's no point in them doing this period dialogue. There's no point in doing this old-timey medicines and all this kind of old speak, because... It's not in the old times. It's not in the period that he's saying. I think there's a way to do it without bringing up modern day, and you do it sort of in the way that the witch did it. Yeah. Speaking of modern Eggers, in that the whole reason why, because you could still have the elders putting up this facade, but it, and you could even keep the whole, you know, they have mementos of what they left behind, but they're keeping the people ignorant. Nevertheless, it's just they're completely isolated from a more, I don't want to call it more civilized community, but you could have the same effect. Like, it doesn't need the modern sensibility to have the impact. I think what you're saying is true, although I think in this case I I can kind of defend at least the concept or at least the idea, because I think that what he is getting at, and this I think becomes more clear later on in the film, but I, I sort of think what he's getting at is this idea of the falsely preserved sense of security mm. and the sort of the, the artificial sense of innocence and insularity. And it this is kind of, we talked about Signs being unexpectedly a, a post 9-11 film. This oh is my God. very much yes. one of those. And and you can, you can argue whether or not it's successful, but I think it's interesting what he's doing, especially at um, a time since 2004. There really weren't a lot of, like, this is before Spielberg does uh, uh, Munich and War of the Worlds, which is him doing, like, War on Terror in a genre kind of way, in the case of War of the Worlds, and then more um, sort of historically with Munich. 
this is Shyamalan applying some of those ideas in a, a way that I think is interesting in a horror movie setting. Whether or not that's successful is, uh, I think, uh, I, I mean, I think we can we can sort of figure out the answer to that one. But it's an interesting idea, and I and and I think that that's there's something notable about that at least. Mm. So we're getting a montage of life in this village with dancing floor sweepers, though this is the first time we notice that, once again, a movie in the Shyamalan universe is telling us that red is bad. These girls bury a set of red berries. So right away we know, oh, red's bad. And, well, you know, I was actually impressed by the use of the color again. In well, yeah. it's, it's obvious. I mean, but it's, yeah, yeah, I think that one thing I've, I've stuck with as these films have gone on is I don't think he's lost any of the, the feeling that he's confident yeah. with his camera work with his color, with the mise-en-scene. I don't really have an issue with any of that in this film. It's more other things about it, specifically in terms of the direction of the performances, in terms of the writing, in terms of having a a coherent whole. But in terms of having a visual sensibility and a visual um, strength, I think there is a lot of that in this film. And I think about the the moment where, if I'm remembering correctly, uh, Joaquin Phoenix is looking and the camera sort of, if I'm remembering right, it sort of uh, pulls back and as it pulls back, we sort of are brought through some of these branches with the red oh, yeah. plants growing yeah. on it. I thought that was very effectively done. And there's a couple other moments later on that I'll talk about. We then see some kids notice that a skinned animal has been found. And so Edward tells them that those we do not speak of were responsible for this. We are then introduced to Lucius, played by Joaquin Phoenix, who asked permission to go to the towns to get medical supplies to help stop what happened to the boy from the beginning happen to any other person but he is of course denied boys what do we feel about what Shyamalan setting up as far as what is in the towns the danger out there Mike did you know that these weren't actually creatures when you started watching this or yeah unfortunately this is one of those ones where yeah 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 and uh I wonder how effective they would have played if I hadn't known Mm -hmm. but uh, i I feel like for me i had a hard time kind of getting into the film in the early sections especially because i feel like there's not an anchor there emotionally speaking in the way that you had bruce willis and mel gibson in the earlier films who have these very clear emotional stakes with which the audience can identify and that can ground them even though all this sort of supernatural stuff is happening around them and that doesn't really happen here because he doesn't because he's chosen to make this more of an ensemble there's not really a there there is a protagonist but you don't know that from the beginning yeah. it, she only eventually emerges and that can be an approach that can work but i think in the context of one a supernatural kind of story that can be difficult if you don't have someone clear at the beginning. And two, his direction is very cold and it's always been very cold. And that can be a problem if you don't have a, like I said, an emotional anger at the center of it. I echo, I think, 100% of everything Mike said. I don't want to call it a bait and switch, but the way that Joaquin Phoenix gets taken out of the movie and is just sidelined after the first half, Mm -hmm. it's a weird piece of, of, I don't want to call it misdirecting, and I also don't want to call it nepotism, because of the actress who is the main star, because God knows that's been my issue with her entire career. So I'll I'll stay silent on that for now. All right. Mike, to kind of, once again, piggyback on something that you said, that whole thing you mentioned about the protagonist not being revealed till when it is revealed, that was one of Shyamalan's, in his mind, one of his greatest accomplishments with this movie was you kind of misdirecting, making you think that Joaquin Phoenix is actually the protagonist when it's not. It's this blind woman who we're going to meet here in a little bit. I mean, I think he did it. I don't think he, it's an accomplishment. Yeah. You know what <laughs> yeah, I mean? Like, exactly. I it's a weird, it's like, 
You know, it's like if I built something, like I, uh, I like made a statue of like Abe Couillet from Full House out of like toothpicks. It's like, well, you did it. I, it's not impressive, or like we're not, we don't. There's nothing to be accomplished by this. We, we gained nothing in society, you know. But so please do that and post the result. <laughs> That'll be good. It'll be my buried secret, actually. Keep it. I'll keep it in a fucking box, and I'll, I'll uh, unlock it when I need to have some sort of emotional catharsis. There's another skin animal, and we are told that it must be a coyote or a wolf, and that they do not believe that their village has been breached. And when Sigourney Weaver is delivering these lines, Matt, is it just me, or does she look like she wished she could have probably accepted AVP instead? Yeah. You know what movie the, the, the acting of this movie reminds me of? It was like watching one of the Star Wars prequels. Oh, Oh, good call. Yeah. No, good call. Yeah. Where everybody is really stilted. Getting through it. Yeah, and, and it's very matter-of-fact dialogue, like, especially yes. with, the ex- with the exposition. Like, when William Hurt gives his sermons, it might as well be the fucking Naboo city <laughs> council meetings that they have in Santa Menace. It's hard to imagine William Hurt's character being able to keep this secret for 30 years because he just, like, talks so much and says so much exposition and so much of like what he's thinking in it that you, it's hard to imagine that he was able to like keep this under wraps. You think that like, cause he's fucking basically, well, whatever. He spills it all to Bryce Dallas Howard later or not all, but most of it to Bryce Dallas Howard later. And it's like, all right, well, I guess this is the worst crisis that's ever visited the village, I guess. I don't know. This is what caused you to break Omerta on this one. And Mike, you mentioned in the first few reviews that we did of the series, you mentioned at least two of them, that there are moments in all of Shyamalan's works, even his most praised, where the dialogue kind of sticks out like a sore thumb. This movie, you have 107 minutes of that. Yeah, which is why I think the most successful by far part of the film is one that has no dialogue. Yeah. And we'll get to that. We'll get to that, sure. We then meet Judy Greer's character of Kitty, who tells her dad that she's in love with Lucius. But after she tells us to Lucius, we cut to her crying in the arms of Ivy, played by Bryce Dallas Howard. Mike, not a fan of Judy Greer in this, huh? Uh, no, I don't know what. I guess she she might. It might just be that she's an actor who has too much of a modern sort of contemporary feel. That's a good call. You just can't help yeah. that. That might be it. But her her line readings are not not good here. She's she's not she's not believable. The idea that she's in love, even if it's just like kind of an adolescent sort of love with Joaquin Phoenix, is not conveyed at all, other than just her saying it. Like, there's no, mm-hmm. this is what I'm talking about, and there's no emotional anchor. Like, what does Joaquin Phoenix's character really want here? It's like, well, he wants to go outside the village and figure shit out, but like, that's not, there's not an emotional hook there. There's nothing really to relate to there. It's, it's, and everyone's so like, he, he's not, he doesn't have any emotions. Like, it's kind of one of the things, like, oh, they're not going to be able to smell fear on me. And it's like, well, what is fucking Judy Greer? Why is she in love with him? You know what I mean? It's yeah. like, what? And of course he's not going to accept your marriage proposal. He's a prig. Yeah. He's got no fucking emotions. You know what I'm saying? And it's like, it's hard to, to relate to that. It's, you've got fucking Joaquin Phoenix out there. He's cold fish. And you got Adrian Brody out there doing this. His shitting it up. And, you know, you got the sort of older actors and they're all kind of cryptic and mysterious. And they're, they're conveying some of the, I think Brendan Gleeson uh, out of them is, is doing a pretty good I agree. job too. Yeah. But it's like, they're conveying some of the like, backstory well and some of that that sadness with the characters but they're so enigmatic that you can't relate to them so really it's all got to go to bryce dallas howard and uh uh, i don't know if this is where we want to yeah get into get into her or not do we want to do that i think she's pretty great here uh i don't know if that's a controversial opinion or not when i say great i don't mean great in the way that like i don't know like um al pacino was great in godfather 2 but you know what i mean it's like i think for as far as what she's asked to do here she does it very well and i think that she is carrying 
pretty much alone the most successful part of this film. And I think that she is able to find ways to deliver the period dialogue more or less convincingly, to convey the emotions of the character and to have the audience sort of relate to that and empathize with that. And I think that she, in her, I mean, I don't, I'm not blind. This is where I have to tell you guys that. But, you know, it seemed to me that her performance of a blind person was a lot more convincing and a lot less condescending than Adrian Brody's performance of a a developmentally disabled person. Really? You know what I'm saying? And that's that's a low bar to to clear, but yeah, that's what I thought. But there are times when she's talking to people and she's in perfect eyeline with them and she's looking up at them. I don't know, man. I agree with everything you're saying about her nuance performance but when it comes to that blindness i mean it is so off and on part of that is what Shyamalan does with her because eventually we're gonna see her run up a fucking hill yeah i mean that doesn't really work but that's not that's not no that's uh, not on her her but i'm saying that in the in the small details of her being blind i don't buy it at all you're right the blindness goes in and out because i'm gonna compare it to another performance because of course I'm a gay man in my 20s i watched beastly i'm not gonna lie so neil patrick harris plays a blind guy in that and there's moments he doesn't have contact lenses or anything like that to give him that milky-eyed mm-hmm. kind of look. And there's so many moments where he's looking directly at the other actors. And I, I have that problem here where I'm not 100% sold that she's blind. I will say she does the best job of delivering this dialogue yeah. without coming off as stagey. But there's not much to this character either. That's true. Was this her first film? I should have looked that up beforehand. I believe it is. I, I remember the hype around it was it being her first film, but you might want to verify that. I, I don't know because I don't think she gets an, an introducing credit, which I think she would get given who her father is. Yeah. I was just thinking this. Now, this might be an area where Matt has some thoughts, but uh, I was just thinking this as I was watching this. Was her career just kind of eaten by Jessica Chastain and Amy Adams? There just wasn't a lot left? Because, like, she started, she was the lead character of Jurassic World, one of the biggest films at the box office of all time. It's a crap movie, but she was the lead of it and people saw it. And yet, not a household name at all, not out there leading other films. She was Elton John's mother in Rocket Man, which is very strange. Mm. So what kind of, I guess it just, I mean, like, I, that's all I can think of. It's just her, her career got eaten by Amy Adams and Jessica well, she, Chastain. She's doing a lot. Because they're, they're, they're better. She's doing a lot behind the camera now. That's where the majority of her work no, is, no, is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I get the feeling, given who her dad was, that's probably who she, what she wanted to do to begin with. But, yeah, I, I don't know. You definitely didn't see her in much in uh, the years right after Jurassic World. You're right that those two actresses took her roles. But also, if you're a casting director... Both of those other two actresses have a lot more range and talent than she does. Oh, boy. Yeah, yeah. I would agree. And I don't dislike her, but I would agree with that. Only movies I've liked her in are, I would argue, Jurassic World. I don't know who the lead is in that movie. Yeah. Because is it the kids? Is it Chris Pratt? Is it fucking Jake Johnson? I don't know. And then I liked her in Rocketman, and I liked her in The Help, but she's really good at playing bitches. That's pretty much it. Yeah. That's true, which is interesting. Uh, how? What do you guys think if uh, Ron Howard had played uh, the William Hurt character here? That would have been, that been interesting. Well, I don't know. When was the last time Ron Howard was in front of the camera? Yeah. The rest of development season? Four or five, maybe. One of them. I don't know. I don't know, guys. I really like your next week's movie, but we'll get to that. We cut to old Mark Zuckerberg here on a stump and then jump off, running in fear of those that we do not speak of, only to be not seen again until he invents Facebook years later. Okay. And fights Superman. And fights Superman. <laughs> All right. Fear. Mike, we're going to get into right what you were talking about earlier. So one of the things I've seen since this movie came out is think pieces on how the village is like a thinly veiled reaction to 9-11. And since I first started reading that reaction, I can definitely see that in this film. The 
red and yellow color scheme, as those were the colors that the government were giving threat levels in the early to mid-2000s, the way Edward is creating fear in order to control this village. Mike, you picked up on that. Yeah, because it's very much like, I, I think about how at the end of the film, we'll, we'll get there, but you, you get the glimpses of what the outside world was like, and it's very much a kind of attempt to kind of bring some reality into it in a very oblique kind of way. But this is very much a film about community identity, which in the, which you can extrapolate to be like national identity. Okay. And I think about how William Hurt, when he has, where they're debating whether or not to send Bryce Dallas Howard out with the medicine to say, or to get the medicine to save Joaquin Phoenix. And he argues that they have to do it even if it involves sort of risking the uh, stability of the, of the village because he says it's the only way that they can remain sort of innocent. So it's, to me, this is very much a film about how these leaders have to kind of choose whether they're going to rule by fear or whether they're going to rule by sort of fairness. And at the end of the movie, it's sort of left ambiguous. They're still choosing fear in a lot of ways, but the fact that they've let this one kind of person, you know, sort of escape for just a little bit is possibly a sign that things are going to change. So it's like, do you rule a country by fear? Do you rule a country by terror alerts and extraordinary rendition and uh, torture and Patriot Act stuff and everything like that? Or do you try and keep some kind of innocence, even if there's a dangerous and dark world out there that can that can hurt people, but you have to be sort of honest with them? And I think that's kind of an interesting idea. Sometimes when people talk about films being topical or having a parallel to current events, they try and make it too analogous. Like, yeah. I don't think that William Hurt is Bush or something yeah. like that. Like, I don't think that, you know, it's not, Sigourney Weaver is not Cheney. Yeah. Like, a fucking, uh, Jesse Eisenberg no. is not, like, uh, Scooter Libby, you know. You're right to an extent. I'm pretty sure Adrian Brody is a takedown of George Bush Jr. <laughs> no, you might have a point there. might have a point there. But, you know, it, I just think of, like, this is also my my thing about, like, the, the Christopher Nolan Dark Knight movies. People are like, oh, is, what is this saying about war on terror or whatever like that. And, it's, and I, I, my other thing is it's less that it's supposed to be some kind of one-to-one analogy and more that it's it's drawing from the questions of the day and the concerns of the day and, and, and playing out that in a, in a dramatic sense. So Ivy tells Noah to stop picking on the kids outside and she makes him take an oath to never strike another person again. We see a foot race between Ivy and Noah, by the way. Ivy's blind. And here we are seeing a Weathering Heights type gothic romance start brewing as Lucius will become a part of this as well. Though this just in, M. Night is no Jane Austen. Uh, you know what doesn't work? What, what really doesn't work is that you never get a sense of the village as any kind of functioning community. Like, I'm not saying you need to, like, get into their finances and, like, look at their budget every year or whatever, but there's no sense of, like, what? Okay, so you wake up in the village. You're fucking, you're walking Phoenix or you're Bryce Dallas Howard or whatever. All right, 8 a.m. What do you do? You know what I'm yeah. saying? What do you do at noon? What? How is this community operating? Do what? Who are people? What are people's occupations? I'm not saying this stuff has to be like explained didactically, but you have to get a sense of what this community is like to have any kind of feeling that it's under threat. Because otherwise, it's just fucking. It's like it's like going to like Colonial Williamsburg or the local living history area thing, where it's like, oh, well, this is what it was like to milk a cow and blah blah blah. But it's just like this is just here for me to watch it. It's not. When I turn around, 
nothing's happening. You know what I'm If the camera was off, these people would have no lives. They'd have no inner lives. And that can be really deadly if, if you're making a film about community and there's no sense of the community. Yeah, to kind of make, make a comparison, and Matt and I may talk about this later on this year, Lord of the Rings. You get a feeling of how those hobbits live throughout the course of a yeah. day. You know, that the camera's off, you know how they live. And, and these people, you get, you're absolutely right. There's no real sense of community here. There's no sense of anything really going on. Where's the structure here? How is it held together? We understand that it's going to Do be... Do they like living there? Yeah, yeah. Right. yeah. It's, oh, it's so weird. It feels like rudimentary Amish country, but that's yeah. pretty much the only read you can take from it. Well, it, it, the setting doesn't make any sense. Now, I studied history in college. Like, that was my major. So I might have a different, like, I might have more of a stick up my ass about this than, than some other people. But, like, if they're going to say it's 1897, it's like, well, where's the, where, where are the telephones? Where are the telegraphs? They had cars. They had very early kind of uh, automobiles. Then where the, where's the train tracks? Even if this is a rural, isolated community, like, where, where is all this stuff? So putting a, a, a name on it, having them wear 19th Street clothing when they're actually acting more like it's, you know, you say Amish. I think the Amish are based sort of stick around 1600 or so like that's where they sort of pick as their point it's like it's such a mishmash here that it's not convincing in, in, in any way it's, it's a movie called the village where you don't buy that there's a village like that's, yeah yeah so you just love with buff you know it's, it's <laughs> Noah gives Ivy some red berries, and we hear some creepy music with Ivy explaining that the color red brings in those we do not speak of. Lucius once again makes an appeal to leave the village to find supplies, but he is once again denied. Lucius asks to open the black box, but he is again denied by Alice. We see elders in yellow coats paint a yellow stripe on the village posts, and Lucius takes a chance at going into the village. He finds some red berries, and we hear a growl, only to be given a tiny glimpse at the creature as he's walking away. All right, the creatures. Shyamalan had a much different version of this creature in mind when he wrote the script, but the design his crews came up with weren't really up to par with the vision he had. So at the last minute, they did up this horrible getup that looks like a rejected Skeksy from the Dark Crystal. <laughs> oh, guys, the design. The further away you are from it, the better it looks. Like, yeah. The closer you get to it, the worse it looks. Like, it, I, I kind of was intrigued by when you just get the first glimpses, uh -huh. but... By the end of it, it's, it, it really is like Halloween costume. It's, and, and I understand that that's kind of the point in a way, that, that it, it is fake, it is artificial, and you, the more you look at it, the more you're supposed to realize that, but you feel like there's a better way of doing it. And I have the DVD of this, and on a feature edit of that, it's really funny. Shyamalan says, when it comes out for the first time, he goes, well, maybe I can film it in a way in which it looks a little scary. Even he knew this was a lost cause. But he wanted the jaws in. Yeah, yeah, like, exactly. Oh, we'll, we'll hide it with the camera. Mm -hmm. The only positive I can give is that they're not computer rendered like the aliens and signs. Oh, yeah. I do appreciate their practical, but they look like Skeksis mixed with the ring rates from Lord of the Rings. Oh, another good comparison. We see a very odd shot from outside a window of Noah hiding in a closet as Ivy goes inside. Very bizarre, let me be slick with this camera kind of shot here. You know what it reminds me What's of? What's that? I, he couldn't, I mean, I'm sure he wasn't what I it's like thinking of this but it reminded me of he wasn't thinking this because it hadn't come out what am I saying um <laughs> did you guys ever see the uh prequel series to um Wet Hot American Summer on Netflix no okay I love that and there's a part where uh Christopher Maloney is angry at uh Ken Marino and Ken Marino's got to hide from him but it's like 
uh, Ken Marino is just like standing still and just like hoping that he doesn't. He's like not behind like a like a coat hanger and he's, like, he clearly can see, but he's just like standing still with like his mouth agape and it's like that. And I understand that this is not a, this is not an actual important scene, so it's not you know this is kind of I think actually sort of, sort of supposed to be played for comedy, but it's preposterous. Yeah, we then get what is the closest thing we're going to have to a suspenseful scene as a thing we shall not speak of is spotted roaming around the village with Luscious being outside. Matt, as you said, this this scene was actually in the trailer. Ivy extends her hand, and as the creature gets closer, Lucius grabs it and walks inside. I don't know. This was halfway decent. Like you said, Mike, the less we see of them, the better. Mm-hmm. The, that shot of the hand extending and the creature coming out, I thought that was actually a pretty creative shot, and then her being pulled inside. But other than that, how do you guys feel about this? I started to think, like, oh, maybe this is... Because I, I liked it, and I thought maybe 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 this just needed sort of a little bit of that tension to start picking up. And in some ways, I think that's kind of true. Whether or not it picks up enough is, is a different question, but there's a little bit more threat involved here. There's at least some stakes, you know what I'm yeah. saying? And uh, I still think he knows, at this point at least, how to get tension out of the yeah. scene. So. Yeah. I don't think he's ever lost that touch. He just kind of buried it under self-pretense. But the, the window scene reminded me of fucking Jason Voorhees grabbing Corey Feldman. Oh, yeah. In, uh, yeah good call. Final chapter. That's all I could think of. I know Jack is more of the Hitchcock aficionado than I am, but I wonder if that's a shot like he, because he loves being compared to Hitchcock. And so I wonder if that's a shot like maybe taken from one of his movies. Maybe Jack can listen and tell me, hmm. tell me that. So around this time, we also get this movie's message, boys. It's a lot like the conflict of faith last time, but this time it's that love will conquer all. And man, does that make me want to throw up. Because <laughs> it also is not, they don't follow through. Like, that's not what the film's about. I, I don't know. know. A little bit like, it's sort of like, um, God, I'm making so many like, it's sort of like moments here, but it's like, there's that part in um, Plan 9 from Outer Space, and you know you've made a great film when I start comparing it to Plan 9 from Outer Space, but there's that part in Plan 9 from Outer Space where the aliens are like, it's, it's so ironic, the Earth men are <laughs> af- afraid of the dead, and it's like, what? That's not ironic, like that's not <laughs> the point of this film, I don't know. Because you have other oh, art, there are themes in this movie. There's yes. about fear versus freedom. Yeah. And it's like, but it's like, this is not a film that's about love. This is not Interstellar. I love Interstellar. Um, oh boy. <laughs> uh, you know, uh, have I have I picked out a scab here? <laughs> no. Matt, did you pick up on that theme? Picked up on it. It was more like I was thrown to the ground and pummeled with a sledgehammer. <laughs> With that moral, much like Interstellar, the movie takes a 180 with what you think it's yeah talking about. And much like that movie, it doesn't gel. Mm -hmm. We see a red paint slash on a red door and hear a letter from Lucius saying that he did indeed go into the woods and that he was the cause of the attack. Edward calls him fearless. And we then cut to Kitty's wedding. (laughs) Boy, this was quick. Kitty's being told no by Lucius, but here she is getting married. (laughs) She found someone pretty damn quick. It was a different time. Yeah. (laughs) 2004 in a a, a while. Yeah, true. Where Ivy is told the story of a woman who didn't make it past her 23rd birthday. More on this later. So in the middle of the dance and the wedding, Ivy hears a scream and is dragged out by Lucius. We hear the kids say that the creatures have left more warnings. So somehow in the course of this wedding, boys, these animals are skinned without anybody knowing. And there are a lot of them out here, by the way. So these warnings were done when? Hmm. Man. I don't know. That's a good question. He put such a great suspenseful scene together. I shouldn't say great. A pretty decent scene together right before this. And now he's going right back to just unexplained bullshit. And it drives me nuts. Yeah. 
So they all explore outside, and we see even more skinned animals. This time they are hanging. This, of course, eliminates the idea of it being coyotes, as originally thought. This scene with all the hanging animals. Did you ever see Stephen King's Sleepwalker? Oh, yeah. It's literally the opening of that where Mark Hamill plays the sheriff and they're walking and all the cats are hung <laughs> as they approach the, the porch. It's literally that fucking movie. <laughs> More bad dialogue on the porch about whether or not Ivy is a tomboy and how brave Lucius may or may not be. As I said, guys, I mean, Shyamalan writing romance, man alive. Somebody had to tell this guy no. Why did anybody tell him no? I noticed that Kathleen Kennedy and Frank Marshall, they're not on this picture. He needed a producer to just look at the script and say, this doesn't work, dude. You need to redo this. Oh, God, this is fucking bad. Although I will say I do like the chemistry. I think the chemistry between the two is natural, and I think it it feels okay. But the dialogue just doesn't do him any favors. Well, between Phoenix and Howard? Yeah. Yeah, I, 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 and I, I, ha- I haven't spoken about Phoenix's performance here. It's, I think it's pretty good. I think uh, it's not perfect by any means, but um, I think that uh, as far, like, if I was ranking everybody in this film, and Howard was at the top and Brody was at the bottom under the core of the earth, um, <laughs> Phoenix would definitely be a lot closer to the Howard end of the, of the spectrum here. So Ivy reveals her love for Lucius to Kitty, and Kitty is remarkably supportive of this relationship. Meanwhile, Noah visits Lucius, and we find out that he is not supportive, as he stabs him in a scene that I actually kind of liked. But at this point of the film, I feel like Phoenix is the closest we have to a protagonist. So the twist to me is that after Ivy finds him, he disappears from the 54-minute mark on, which to me says that he had other commitments and maybe wasn't available for the reshoots that they do. Uh, three words, walk the line. Yeah, that's true. Oh, really? That would come out the next year. Um, I think that I would like this scene if it didn't... This is, is going to be a, a bit of a cop-out, but I feel like I would like the scene if it didn't involve Adrian Brody's character, which is half the scene, so it doesn't yeah. really make sense what I just said. But it's like that character is so just like toxic influence on the film that it's like having him be part of this well-staged, I think, sort of scene is kind of deflates it. Every scene with Adrian Brody is borderline unwatchable. I think it's one of the worst performances we've talked about on this show. I agree. And we've talked about some bad ones. Yeah. You know, why take this route with this character? Why not make him like a, for lack of a better term, jock? Just a total asshole. Like the town bully. Yeah, the town bully. Exactly. Why take it this route? I don't know if he's trying to get sympathy for this character, but it doesn't work. And when you have this kind of performance, I don't even know if a good performance in this role would work for that because of how bad it's played off and written. Yeah, no, you're right. There might be a way to play this character that is effective, but uh, probably not. Uh, It's very, it's extremely difficult to play and and to portray, it's not just acting, it's it's the writing as well. Yeah. It's very difficult to portray a character who is mentally challenged. There are a lot of issues that come up with that, and it's, it's like a lot to get into. And there's like the question of like, is there a way to do it that's not offensive? If there's a way to, if there's a way to do it that's accurate, if there's a way to do it that's not stereotypical, if there's a way to do it that's not patronizing, there's, there's, there's a lot of different Absolutely. questions, and there's a lot yeah. of different ways. And if you do that in a um, film where that's the whole film, if you're doing that in What's Eating Gilbert Grape, or, um, or some other Rain Man, or I mean, not that that's, I mean, that's a different kind of thing, but still, you know what I'm saying? Someone yeah. with very severe mental issues. It can be so difficult, even when that's the whole focus of the film. And to have that just be a character who essentially has no interiority and is just there really as a kind of device is pretty much a disaster. And I hadn't even thought about this, but you're right. The character should just be 
the belligerent guy mm-hmm. in the town who like is a bully and just tries to boss everyone around and, and is violent and stuff like that. And that would make so much more sense. And, and it's like, why is that not what they do? I have no clue. Mm-hmm. I, maybe they, he wanted to, you know, he doesn't have a lot of characters like that so far in his movies in terms of like, usually he's pretty sympathetic to almost everybody in the movie, even like the villains, you know mm-hmm. what I'm saying? There's usually not a lot of like just like someone who just exists in the film to be an asshole, and certainly not like major characters. So maybe that's what it is. But if that's the case, you need to set aside that concern to actually come up with a character that makes sense. Absolutely, yeah. And this movie's not terrible enough for me to get angry or nitpicky. It's boring as shit. Yeah, yeah, it's that, boring. That's, that's, that's its main crux. You're absolutely right. It's boring. And I told you guys, we were originally going to peel back the curtain. We were originally going to record this last week, and I had taken notes and everything last week, but I just, I couldn't record last week. There was too much going on. So I said, guys, let's wait. And then I said, let's wait an hour because I wanted to get home and watch this right before we started recording. I was this close, guys, to falling asleep in the midst of that viewing. It's so boring. You can barely get through it. So Noah has the bad color on his hands, and Ivy finds Luscious. By the way, did I mention that she's blind? Lucius is revealed to be in a bad way, and Ivy steps up to volunteer her services to go through the woods in order to find the medicines needed to save him. Edward is feeling forced to break the oath and have his daughter get the supplies needed because of her love for Lucius. He tells her about her wealthy grandfather and how much he taught him to lead when others would follow and that he was shot while he slept, making him trust her over all the others. Don't you guys feel like Shyamalan, he has written what is probably the greatest story ever in his mind with this kind of stuff, where William Hurst just given this speech to her, and I'm just thinking, man, Shyamalan, you really think you've written something special here, don't you? There's a lot of confidence in this film. Yes. And if it's misplaced confidence, that is the problem. But to make a film with this premise and with this twist, you really do have to have a lot of confidence in what you're saying. And you do have to, and to make a film also this kind of boring for the first half of it, certainly, you really have to have confidence that you're such a master of tone that you've got the audience in your hand, you know, even if there's very little going on and everything like that. I guess he just gives, he gives us to William Hurt, he thinks William Hurt's going to sort of make it saying, and he doesn't really. He's not terrible, but it, William Hurt is such like a cold actor. Yeah. But to just have him do this is very... I don't know, man. It's this is this is such a cold movie that it's hard to relate to, and very few of the actors seem to be wanting to play emotions that are not just spoken, like that are not just. It's the Star Wars prequels thing. It's like you say that you love somebody, you don't sh- you don't show it in your body language or your eyes or the way that you interact with the character. You just go, "I'm falling in love with you, Anakin," and it's like that's kind of what everybody in this village is sort of like. They they have these emotions that we know they exist because they say them. But we never sense them. Yeah, we never you know, feel them. They're never conveyed. Yeah. They're just telegraphed. Yeah. William Hurt's one of those actors to where he's got an on switch and an off switch, where when he's on, he's really good. Like Kiss of the Spider Woman, History of Violence. Mm-hmm. And then you get stuff like this in The Incredible Hulk, where he looks like he would rather be anywhere else. And it's not very fun to watch. And with all the Star Wars analogies, this movie needed an Ian McDermott just to play big. Yes. All capacities. Yeah. Bring in John Lithgow. There you go. Edward tells her to do her very best not to scream, which I thought was a weird line. She packs her things, and then she's on her way, complete with what she says are magic rocks, but that's not enough for Fintan, 
who fears for his life and leaves her alone. She walks into a costume of those we do not speak of. And man, this close-up of the costume just is not doing it any favors, is it, guys? No, no. Although I do think the staging at this point yeah. starts to get pretty good in terms of, like, I, this is my favorite stretch of the movie. The next, I don't know how long, this is not a very long movie, so it's probably only, like, 20, 25 minutes or maybe even less. I don't know. But the, the part where she's going through the woods you like that, huh? is, I think... Yeah, I think it's really well done. I think that Shyamalan, like, I think that the way he uses the camera to convey, since she's blind, she's not aware of what the dangers are around her. And yet he can't just put a black screen up, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. So he has the camera there, and it's so close to her that we basically don't get a sense of anything around her except what she can actually feel herself, the branches that she's walking through when they're hitting her and everything like that. I think that's so smartly done, and I think this is my favorite section of the film. And I think that when the camera sort of cranes up when she is standing in the field of the red uh, plants, the red flowers, mm-hmm. red berries, uh, I think that that's a really striking image. And and this is where I, I think if I were sitting down with Shyamalan in 2003 or whatever, I'd be like, less of the village. The yeah. village is not interesting the way you've written it. Make this more of like, I'm trying to think like what's a film where someone is in the world. Castaway. Yeah, Castaway. Have it be more like that. Have it have the survival of it. You have this character here and you have this actor who can play the emotions of this character so use that. You know what I'm saying? And, and, and use the fear of what it must be like to be unable to see in the middle of the dark woods and you believe that there are monsters around you and like have that. Have that be the movie, you know? Yeah, well, let's not forget, Shyamalan's original title for this movie was The Woods. Yep. That makes a lot of sense. Not, not The Village, so you might be onto something. But also, I agree with you to an extent that this is the most engaging aspect of the movie, but like a lot of this movie, Shyamalan really needed an editor to come in and trim these scenes down, like those tree branches, because I swear to God, it takes her ten minutes to climb out of that fucking hole that she falls in. <laughs> well... The editor, it's interesting you bring that up. He originally wanted the stabbing to happen near the end of the movie. And the editors put it where they did. We could have had like another 40 minutes of the village if they hadn't put it there. He is so enamored with that village. It's so crazy to me. That's a fucking nightmare. Yeah. That's that's, that's death. That's somnambulistic there. I mean, it's like nothing going on in that village. I do agree with you, Mike. I think this part where, and Deacons is doing a lot with the camera, everything's going pretty well in this little section. It's just like, you just want to shake Shyamalan and say, why can't we have more of this? Why have you built this movie so poorly up to this point? Ivy finds out that the creatures are actually elders preventing people from going into the woods, though the skinned animals are the work of someone else. He cries to her that they were not meant to harm anyone. This is when the twist starts revealing itself as we hear from Edward that they left somewhere in order to come here and live what he calls this way of life and that the world kneels before love. (laughs) My God. Let's save our thoughts on the final twist for a bit later. But Mike, how are you feeling at this? You know what the actual twist is. How do you feel about how they're slowly rolling this? Well, I was sort of wondering how they were going to reveal it. I knew what the twist was, but I wasn't sure if it was going to be like a situation where... I don't know, one guy just sits down and kind of explains it all, or if it was going to be done something a little more subtly or whatever. And I think that it's kind of a mixed bag. There's some parts of it that are terrible in the way that he's rolling it out. I do like that he decided not to just have it be like one scene where someone just sits down and explains it all. I do like that it's kind of he gives you sort of bits and pieces of it. 
mm-hmm. in this last act to build up to it. I think that that takes the sting out of its sort of ridiculous nature. It reduces the ridiculousness of it in, in a way. But there are parts of this that are goofy and are poorly written and wooden and, and silly. And there's other parts that I like better. But I don't know if I can be sort of speaking out of order or whatever. But there is something powerful about William Hurt and his wife. I can't remember the actor who, who played her. But they're they're opening up the safe and they're looking at these photographs of their old lives. I think there is something that's kind of powerful about that. But then Shyamalan kind of shoots himself in the foot by having this overdone narration of like, oh, yeah. you hear William Hurt like, I'm a professor of history, history, history. Oh, yeah. I think I have an idea, idea, idea. It's like, oh my God, this is <laughs> so, it's, it's so, it's so silly. But, uh, and it's, it's like, I know that, sh- Show Don't Tell has become like a uh, it's something that's repeated so much that you almost are like that might not even be true like it, it, like as obviously true as it is but Show Don't Tell like yeah <laughs> like you don't have to hear William Hurt go fellas I I'm, I'd like to introduce you to the Village Initiative you know it's, it's not <laughs> that's not necessary I mean it, there's something about if he just opens up silently opens up the safe and you see that he's got pictures and newspapers and stuff like mm-hmm. that. You go, okay, I get it. This is the modern times. He's not, they're not actually in the past. He knows about this. Other people don't. That makes sense. Got it. Mm-hmm. You don't have to have this voiceover. It's not like when Charlton Heston fucking sees the Statue of Liberty at the end of <laughs> Planet of the Apes. There has to be a voiceover of a guy going, it's time to blow up the Statue of Liberty, Liberty, Liberty. You know, it's not... <laughs> We cut to Ivy in the woods, her yellow coat dirty as she loses her footing and catches herself before she falls into a ravine and pulls herself up. She's going through the woods, having a panic attack when there's growling behind her, and here we are. She's face to face with a thing we do not speak of, and it is amongst the red berries, and then it attacks her. She finds where the ravine starts and puts out her arms and very Looney Tunes-like steps out of the way as it gets close enough and then falls down to reveal itself to be Adrian Brody's Noah. Uh, Mike, you've liked this portion of the movie up to this point. How do you feel about this? So when it's revealed to be Adrian Brody, that's stupid. That is that's dumb. But, uh, you know, I actually didn't mind her little Looney Tunes maneuver because really? I think it works in the moment. You're right that it is, like, when you think about it, it is kind of silly. But I think that in the moment it works because of Howard's performance and because of how much the camera is focused on what she's doing and not on kind of the big picture. Because the big picture would look silly. Like, if you had a shot... It was like a it was like a long shot, and you could see Adrian Brody running at her from like a profile view and everything like that. And they were sort of small figures in a big vista. That would look very silly, but the, having it be close up on her is, I think, the right call. And I I think that it it works. But then you see that it's Adrian Brody, and that's I'm sorry, but this is just it's silly. It's 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 stupid, and it's like it doesn't make any sense. What is this? This guy, okay, so he's stolen the costume that they used to, to do the thing. I guess he's decided that that's him now. He must put that on. I mean, maybe this is why they decided to have him be mentally challenged. It's like that's the only way mm. in their mind, I guess, in their thinking, that's the only way to have these completely ridiculous choices justified. But that doesn't justify them either. There's no, there's no mental illness that makes someone put on a, a, a village monster costume for no reason and make traps. That's not, yeah. I'm, I, yeah, I'm not a psychologist, but I'm pretty sure that that's not in the DSM-4. <laughs> that mental condition is whatever they diagnosed Batman with. <laughs> I, don't know, I don't know what that psychosis is. This character should have been played by Adam West. Because <laughs> then you wouldn't be like, there's something wrong with him mentally, you just be like, that's Adam West. He's a mm. bit of an eccentric. Yeah, if it was him or Michael Moriarty or fucking Christopher Walken, this movie's infinitely better. And then, believe it or not, we just keep going downhill. Ivy finds the road her father told her about and starts following it, and it leads to a wall. 
where she makes her way over. Edward opens the black box, and we are treated to articles, as Mike said, detailing why Edward took his grandfather's money and built this, I guess we can call it dystopia. All right, let's dissect this. They're in Pennsylvania, right? Why not go to a goddamn Amish country? You're right. It doesn't make a lot of sense, does it? Amish County. This is so ridiculous. Why are you making this whole thing where everybody's cut off from the world? Okay, I get it. But this is ridiculous that they would go through these lengths because why? Gun violence? This is so stupid. You also need to tell me that they have enough money to convince the United States government to mandate them as a no-fly zone, even though that it's... Largely restricted to military only, and this is Pennsylvania. You mean to tell me not a single person has ever heard a truck or fireworks or any of the other stuff that happens in day-to-day life? It's what I talked about to start this show, where the more you think about this and the lengths they go to, the more absurd and laughable it is. Yeah, that's the problem. Is The more they explain it, the less sense of it makes. This would be, I actually think that this twist could work it doesn't make a lot of sense, but I think that this twist could work the less you try and talk about it and justify it. When uh, a certain actor, I can't identify who he is, but when a certain actor makes his appearance as the security supervisor at the end, I didn't recognize him, uh, and and starts talking about, like, oh, yes, a couple years ago, they had uh, oh. there's some problem about this, and they had to pay off some uh, Government officials, no flies. You're like, oh my god, this is unnecessary. It's a little bit like the scene at the end of Psycho, where the the fucking uh, psychologist just almost tries to ruin the movie for like five minutes. I know some people try and stick up for that scene. Psycho's my favorite Hitchcock movie. I love Psycho, but there's that scene at the end where the guy, like, it's almost like he's like single-handedly trying to ruin one of the greatest films of all time. But um, uh, it's like that. Like, the more you explain it, the less scary or enigmatic it is. I almost think that you could almost... I don't know. I think some of the scene with her talking to the security guard, there's, there's parts of that that are interesting, yeah. like how scared she is versus how unaware he is. I think so, some of that is interesting. But part of me wonders if just the best way it could have been done would be like she gets over the wall and then you hear a siren. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. And see the Jeep approaching or whatever and then cut back to the village. Now, that might be a little too unexplained. You might be like, well, what what happened there? How Did she know that their modern world is out there or not like that? But less is more, I think, when it comes to this sort of thing. You didn't need to have at the end of The Sixth Sense fucking, I don't, I don't know. You didn't need to have Bruce Willis talking to the security guard about how he's a ghost. All right. I'm, I'm going to uh, reveal the twist that Mike is hiding here. The person he's talking about, the great actor who's playing this security supervisor, is M. Night Shyamalan himself. And for some reason, he gives himself just bullshit exposition about how money has been put in to keep plane routes out of these parts, which is ridiculous in itself. What are they flying over? Canada? And it's like, I, I wasn't even thinking about the planes until you fucking brought it up. Like, you know what I mean? Like, you don't have to explain it. If we accept this idea of this village, like, it's a ridiculous idea. Just don't mention that there are planes, and I won't even think about planes. I That's know! Easy. It's like the fucking scene in Zodiac where John Carroll Lynch is like, oh, those bloody knives, that was from a chicken I killed. It's like, I wasn't asking about any bloody knives, Shyamalan. You didn't need to bring up the bloody knives or airplanes here. God. Or they could even pass them out as creatures or something. I don't know. Like, it's just, oh, my God. I thought the most unbelievable thing in this movie was going to be the length of those dinner tables. (laughs) But I was proven wrong because those tables are so fucking big, they don't even fit into a wide shot. I know. (laughs) If we're being told in the beginning that money is the root of all evil, how is it that money is what they are using to keep this up anyway? I think that from a thematic point, the idea being, and I think it's an interesting idea, the idea being that these characters, this older generation, they're so traumatized by 
the world that they just want to retreat from it all. But what they come up with is stupid. And that's kind of also the point of the movie is sort of what they've created is not any kind of paradise. They, even, they, even if they think that they're creating some kind of innocence for themselves, it's, it's actually ruled by fear and deception. So it's also to pack lies as Bill Collins might say. I think that there is something kind of interesting about that idea of these people who refuse to accept the real world. They refuse to deal with the, the actual consequences of the world as it's presented to them and choose to create their own world. It doesn't make any sense. But again, like once you start getting into the logistics of it, it's, you're really like over-explaining yourself here. Hmm. So the ranger grabs the supplies as well as a ladder to help Ivy get back over. And she makes her way back. We get a final bullshit monologue from Edward where he tells Noah's mom that his death is going to allow their idea of preservation to continue. <laughs> it's going to exploit the death of this. I know. What? See, this is another one not to do a rewrite again. Like, I kind of don't like just like rewriting shit and like being like, well, this is how I would have done it. But you do almost think that like, wouldn't it be better if Bryce Dallas Howard comes back? I got the medicine. I, I encountered one of the creatures and I had I had to kill it. And she thinks that that's a good thing, and all, all the other villagers think that a good – the elders, like, kind of exchange a look with each other because they know. So even though everyone else is celebrating, there's this, like, note of sadness from the people who have the full knowledge of things. That could be effective, but, like, actually having him say, your son, we're going to bury him. We're going to give him a proper burial, and it'll – it'll we'll use that to build a new lie from which to protect the village. Uh-huh. It's like, okay, Philip, do not believe in this one, William Hurt. <laughs> The way to do this movie is to literally have the younger generation, the younger generation, I I mean 30-year-old Joaquin Phoenix and Bryce Dallas Howard, have these two be the ones who bring this community down or see it for what it is and take it down. Reveal what these people are to the people around them and actually get it taken down. To have it be this and to have it end on... William Hurt saying that we're going to use his death in order to, as Matt says, exploit this guy. This is so misguided. It's so messy. I think there's a way it can work as a dark ending, sort of a memento-esque ending, where it's like the characters make a morally wrong choice. You know what I'm saying? And, yeah. and the audience gets kind of a chill from that. I think that there's a way to make that work, but I don't think that the ending is all that aware of it, or at least it doesn't really convey that. I, what's the last, I'm trying to think what the last actual line that she has in the film is. I'm um, not sure. All I know is that she walks up to him, gives him the medicine, and we never find out if it actually works. Right. I think she just says, I'm back, or something like that. So she has the same line that Samwise has at the end of Lord of the Rings, but um, (laughs) which is like, it's like not a line with any meaning. Like, it doesn't have any resonance. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I I would almost have it be like, again, if you want to play up the darkness of it, I'm just fucking rewrite city here, but I would almost have her line be like, she's talking to Joaquin Phoenix, the mysteriously absent Bela Lugosi in Play Night from Outer Space. Joaquin Phoenix, say to him, like, I'm back and I'm never leaving again, or something like that. Like, if she said that, then there's like a, there's a darkness to that. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. There's, there's a darkness that she's not aware of, but the audience would be aware of. Or, or have it be, yeah, like, there's also an interesting plot where it's like, this is the end of the, this is the fucking, it's the end of Pleasantville. You know what I mean? Yeah. Someone has come in and they've brought, color to this little this little village that's hidebound you know but uh uh it, it's sort of not either of those and 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 there's a way to do that that would be effective i don't think it's totally ineffective but it, it, it's an underwhelming note to end on is just have her just be like i'm back yeah and in my shamalan film all right that does it for the village scale one to ten what do we give the village matt sir you've been relatively quiet this podcast why don't you unleash your fury now 
that's the predicament that this movie puts me in. It's not objectively awful enough for me to, to yell and scream, which I seldom do anyway. I don't think I've really yelled at any movies. I've yelled at co-hosts um, <laughs> for their opinions, which is arguably worse. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, so I like I like to do my analogies with movies, and I had to write this one down because I, I thought it was actually surprisingly clever not to toot my own horn. This movie is like being locked in a hot car in the middle of July. And what I mean by that is the car won't start. You're in the middle of nowhere, so you're sitting in the car. First 20 minutes, it's not objectively terrible, but there's things you'd rather be doing. And then about 45 minutes to 50 minutes in, you just want to die. Or you're worried that death is creeping closer and closer, because this movie is like the death of a thousand cuts, in that there's nothing that is outside of Adrian Brody, which I think that's just a misfire on all departments. There's nothing that's like, oh my god, this is the one of the worst things I have ever seen. But there's so many minuscule areas where this movie just fails. It's not particularly scary. It's not particularly insightful. It's not particularly well-written. There's not a lot of really great things, signs at least. I thought there were some moments of quality, and I think on the whole that movie's a, a little bit tighter, and it doesn't have the just slog feeling that this does. So is this the worst movie Shyamalan's ever made up to this point? Yes, but it's not going to be the worst thing he's ever done. But this is definitely where the... If you look at the village, there's a yield sign that Shyamalan doesn't take, and he just veers into one-way traffic from here on out. So this is the uh, the consummate 4 out of 10 for me on this one, boys. Mm, 4 out of 10 for Mr. Goudreau. Mike, first time viewing, what do you give the village? Okay, so this is where I hate giving i won't say i hate it i don't like giving star ratings to things or giving a numeric rating because to me that that's so like mathematic you know in, in something that's art that's something that's abstract and it's more kind of uh, emotion based and everything like that so it's like something can simultaneously be a seven and a three and a one and a ten or you know something can be a four on one day and an eight the next day or whatever you know you know what i mean mm -hmm. and um i i'm kind of i'm kind of a little bit i'm a little bit vexed at giving a uh a rating to this one because in the same way that I gave Unbreakable the same rating as The Sixth Sense, even though they were very different kinds of eights, each one was an eight in a different way. I feel like I'm going to give this one a five, which is the same as Signs, but it's an extremely different kind of five. This is a this is a much more ambitious film than Signs. This is a much more I think a, a, a riskier film than Signs, and I think this is a film that has more confidence and it's got more going on in its head in terms of the ideas that it wants to present than signs, but also there's stuff that is way goofier, and not in a good way, than there is in signs. And this is a film that it, it it's flawed, so extremely flawed, yet there are things I like in it. It might have sounded like I was completely down on it throughout this episode, but I, there are there is stuff I like in it. I like Bryce Dallas Howard's performance. I like stretches of it. I like the themes, and that's not enough to make it a good movie, but I'm going to give it a 5 out of 10 for the reasons that I said. I've read some of the kind of critical reappraisals that this film has kind of gone in recent years. Mm -hmm. um, I know that there's some people who have really kind of embraced this. They said this is sort of this is sort of a hidden gem, and that maybe not everything about it works. It, it was kind of neglected at the time. I don't feel that way right now, and I don't plan on rewatching this movie anytime soon, but I can see a world where I rewatch this and I, I come away with a different kind of appreciation for it. But for right now, 5 out of 10. 
You know, there was a time when I actually used to defend this movie. Friends would say, oh, it's the worst one he's done. And I'd say, actually, I didn't think it was that bad. In fact, I think there might be a binge cast where I say that. You hear Law in the background go, oh, yes, it is. And watching it this time and putting a critical eye to it and actually doing an entire hour-plus podcast on it, it's pretty damn bad. But there are still hints that Shyamalan is on his game in this. I think the suspense scene that I mentioned earlier, I think that still works relatively well. I think, as you said, Mike, the themes, I think, are okay. Problem is, once he gets into this love thing, and he tries going Jane Austen. Now, I will applaud any filmmaker who goes outside his comfort zone and try something different. And I do think he tried that here. The problem is, the result of it is him having the gall to say, yeah, everything revolves around love. And these performances and the, this role that he did for Adrian Brody. And I'm not the world's biggest Adrian Brody fan either, but he didn't do him any favors with this role. This, this role is just, it is so just poorly misguided. But I'm not defending it anymore. I, I don't find too much to really like about it. I'm still going to go four because I think it looks great. I think it still has that Shyamalan feel. He still has a pretty decent aesthetic. I think he has a it has a decent enough look to it where I can go with some of it. But goddamn, there's just so much of this where... And we talked about this whole podcast where it's like, what the fuck what were you thinking and i think once you get around to it the twist is one thing and the twist is stupid but that doesn't even begin to describe the problems with this movie so yeah four out of ten but if we thought he had a lot of gall and a lot of ego on this movie boys wait till next week mike what have you heard what are you expecting when we watch lady in the water next week i'm expecting some hot giamatti action that's what i'm expecting (laughs) I love Paul Giamatti. He, yeah. Right. And I want to see him. I want to see him pick up the pick up the baton left by Bruce Willis and Mel Gibson. Like, I love the idea that uh, uh, M. Night Shyamalan has like cast these great like classic style Hollywood mm-hmm. leading men action hero types, and then he's like, you know, who's next? Giamatti. Like that's that's a man after my own heart. I gotta say. So I'm interested in seeing where this goes. Matt, sir, what are you expecting next week? Oh God, this fucking movie. Um, this is got to be one of those shows where I've joked repeatedly that there's certain movies that I've regretted watching for our show. This is going to be one of those instances where it's going to be a painful experience for me to revisit this movie. (laughs) I had one of the most visceral reactions to this I've ever had watching a movie. Wow. This is the one that my mom had said was the worst thing she had ever seen. Oh, man. I was thinking it was going to be Last Adbrender. Oh, all right. Well. She didn't see that. Are you out of your mind? (laughs) (laughs) All right. Until next week, when we talk about the lady in the water and Shyamalan brings his muse, Bryce Dallas Howard, back. Mike, thank you, sir. Appreciate you coming back. Oh, of course. And until next week, the world moves for podcasts. Thanks, guys. says hi. She says she's sorry for taking the bumblebee pendant. She just likes it a lot.
The Binge Movie Aftertaste is produced by Garrett and Matt. Joseph, did you load that gun? You won't get hurt. Elijah was wrong. There's a monster outside my room. Can I have a glass of water? Voice narration done by Adam. You, alone, will follow the road and leave Covington Woods. Edited by Garrett. Maybe people are setting off the plants? What are you saying? That guy was crazy. We have to save them. They're already dead. Send ships, drop those things. There's, um, there's lots of visual tension. To whom am I speaking with now? Dr. Fletcher, it's Barry.
Today is your coming out party. At least you know what to wear. What? No. Right. It's, when when was that book published? The one that was it was like the rise and fall. Two of years after. This. I, the, we'll talk the, about that. The next man. Time. What's it called? Yeah. Okay. We'll yeah. Yeah. Next we're next we're, we're yeah. definitely talk about that. But... What? No. These are eventually going to be revealed to be those we don't speak of. <laughs> we also oh, here I, we go. What a, go ahead, Matt. I'm sorry. What a bad start. What? No. After she tells us to Lucius, we cut to her crying in the arms of Ivy, played by Bryce. Bryce. <laughs> I put Bryce, but it came out Bruce on my iPad. <laughs> uh, Bryce Dallas Howard. What? No. It's drawing from the questions of the day and the concerns of the day and, and, and playing out that in a, in a dramatic sense. Matt? <sighs> Sorry, this movie's put me to sleep. <laughs> I have nothing to add. All right. <laughs> what? No. Because you have other art. There are themes in this movie. There's yes. about fear versus freedom. Yeah. It's like, but it's like, this is not a film that's about love. This is not Interstellar. I love Interstellar. Um, oh, boy. <laughs> uh, you know, uh, or have, I, have I picked out a scab here? <laughs> no. We're going to leave that in 2020 and just leave that behind. Go ahead. <laughs> All right. Yeah, that, that's in a black hole. Yeah. Never to be discovered. Yeah. Um, I, I don't know. What? No. Or, like, if I was ranking everybody in this film, and Howard was at the top, and Brody was at the bottom under the core of the Earth, um, <laughs> Phoenix would definitely be a lot closer to the Howard end of the, of the spectrum here. You're always talking about the core, aren't you? I am. It's weird, you know. Uh, so in the core, Aaron Eckert plays um, a geologist. And in one of the early scenes, sorry, sorry, he lost me at the core. <laughs> Just like Delroy Lindo gets lost. As you fucking stop. Sorry, spoiler alert. The thing is, like, the core is to Mike what the snowman is to you. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> Matt, how do you feel about this attempt at romance by Shyamalan? Ah, uh, some things are better left unsaid. There you go. <laughs> What? No. Maybe that's what it is, but if that's the case, you need to set aside that concern to actually come up with a character that makes sense. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, Matt? I, I don't have anything to add. <laughs> okay. I'm sorry. This is, one of those, this is one of those shows where Mike is doing a such great job of, <laughs> of allocating my thoughts that I really don't have much superfluous stuff to add. What? No. It doesn't make any sense. But again, like once you start getting into the logistics of it, it's you're really like over explaining yourself here. Mm. 
Matt? Uh, I, I am without words. This movie has rendered me speechless. <laughs> All right. What? No. Mike, first time viewing, what do you give The Village? Okay, so this is where I hate giving... I won't say I hate it. I hate a few things in life. That's not true. I hate a lot of things in life. But anyways... What? No. I love that just the idea that Walking Feet or um uh well I am Walking Fiends, but Swing away, Meryl. Meryl. Swing away. You've been listening to the Binge Media Podcast Network at BingeMedia.net. Support the show by donating on Patreon at Patreon.com slash BingeMedia. Subscribe to us on iTunes. Follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And don't forget... Shut up! I'm waiting.